We are in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. That's page 996 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things that we intentionally attempt to do is to give our announcements up front in the service so that we don't interrupt the flow of worship together. But there are occasionally times where I just feel a need to to kind of tag on to that a bit. And this is one of those times. Last week I did it, I do it again today, and we'll do it again next week. But the men's retreat that is coming in September... Again, I just want to encourage you to, to really consider being a part of that. Uh, however that part looks, if it means you can only come one evening or maybe a couple of days of the retreat, it starts on a Thursday evening with dinner at uh, 6 o'clock, be the first official event that will happen, and then it will run through Saturday at noon. And there's a sign-up sheet in the foyer. As you go out the doors and to the left over in the corner is a sign-up sheet. And over the next couple of weeks, we really do need you to let us know um, your intention and, and specifically that intention. We, as the brochure, some of you have seen that, um, we are offered this particular facility free of charge. It is a wonderful gift to us from, from the Munger family to allow us to use this lodge. Um, it's really a beautiful lodge if you've not been there and, and works well for this kind of an event. Um, but it is important for us to know who's staying overnight for room assignment kinds of things and making sure we have adequate sleeping um, availability. And then also, particularly for meals, again, not only is the lodging free and the, and the place free to use uh, and all of the things that come with that hunting lodge, but also all of the food is provided to us free of charge. But again, we want to help them with that and have not have them over-prepare, under-prepare. So if you can let us know, if you can only come for one evening, just let us know that so that we know can plan on you for meals and those kinds of things or the entire event. Again, there's a brochure in the foyer and you can pick that up and look at that. And and I hope you can come. I've, I last week spent a considerable amount of time talking about the speaker. God has granted us, um, I think, over these last times that we've been together, speakers that have have really been valuable to us and could open God's Word in ways that would be really helpful to us. And I'm convinced this year will will be the same, and you will go away being glad that you took part in it. So let me just again encourage you to to consider that and pray about that. This morning we are in Second Timothy. We're coming to the end of Second Timothy, and we'll move on to Romans, Lord willing, the third Sunday of um, September is when we plan to launch that walk through the book of Romans, which I'm looking forward to. I hope you are as well. I think God will um, will hopefully use that in powerful ways in our lives as we open up that book and walk through it systematically, the writings of Paul there. 
But this morning, as we come to the close now of Second Timothy, which was a prerequisite, if you remember, to Romans, because it, it too was written by Paul, and as we find now, we are coming to the very last words of Paul. The last recorded words of Paul are in chapter 4 of Second Timothy. Paul was confident. We don't know exactly how he was confident, but he knew this time and, and reiterates it to us that he will not escape this imprisonment, his second imprisonment in Rome. And this time he knows it will end in his death. His departure is soon to come, the scripture says. Let me remind you of his words in Philippians. This was the first time Paul was imprisoned. This time was different. The first time was different, much different in the sense that um, he had a sense in which he would he would uh, escape this imprisonment and would be out. Listen to what he said. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, this first imprisonment. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but will with full courage, now as always, will be honored, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. Just think of that. He's in prison, and uh, he's hard-pressed. Whether he wants to escape this prison or die in it, that's really what he's saying. It's hard for me. I am hard-pressed in that particular experience. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. It's interesting how Paul puts that, convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you Again, so he was confident in that first imprisonment that he was to stay. And his specific um, reason in staying was for their progress and joy in the faith. And so Paul saw his death not as loss but as gain. But it now was more necessary for him to stay. And so he did and now finds himself in this second imprisonment here in Rome. The text this morning is is before us, chapter 4, and what we want to do as we look at this text this morning in 2 Timothy is we want to ask the question that Paul affirms there. He says in that particular text that I have fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight, and the specific question to ask is, what is he talking about? What does he mean? I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. I have fought the good fight. What fight? In what context is there a fight going on? A fight that Paul participated in. First Timothy gives us a little bit of insight, I think, into what I think he was saying here. If you go back to chapter 6 of First Timothy, just a page or so, Before this, in your Bibles, if you have them open this morning, you find in verse 12, him admonishing Timothy with these words. He says, fight the good fight, 
so far. But then he goes on to say, fight the good fight of the faith. So I believe what he is talking about here when he says, I have fought the fight, he's talking about, I have fought the fight of faith. And I think he did it in two ways. Two ways that Paul fought the fight of faith. We'll describe what that fight of faith is, but he did it in in two different ways before we look at specifically what it means to fight that fight of faith. The first way in which he did it is in the context and the flow of Second Timothy. It's easy to pick that up, First and Second Timothy, actually, because in that whole flow of those two books, he is talking to Timothy about passing on the deposit, the deposit, passing on the truths of Christianity, of this faith. And what we've talked about often in this series is that Paul was in this prison now and he knew that he wasn't going to get out. And his greatest desire is that what he knew to be true and real would continue on. That that deposit of faith that was deposited with him, particularly because he was one of the apostles, would, would now be passed on to Timothy and beyond Timothy to others until it gets now to us here. Paul desired that that deposit. And so in one sense, he has fought the fight of faith to pass on the deposit of faith to the next generation. That was his commission to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to pass on that deposit, and he now has handed that off to Timothy and is admonishing Timothy in ways in which he can take that deposit and continue to spread that deposit. But I don't think that's the only thing that he's talking about here. I think he's also talking about the fact that he has fought the fight of faith to live the deposit. Certainly, he fought the fight of faith to pass it on, to make sure that it went on to the next generations. But isn't it true that in order to pass something on, really, you have to first live it? Particularly Christianity. Particularly Christianity. You, you can't export Christianity to somebody else. Really export it. Unless it's a living reality to you. Because what you are doing is you're taking something incredibly glorious, i.e. joy in the faith, something glorious, glorious, and, and you're passing it on to the next generation or to your children or, or others, your work, people in the workplace, wherever you're passing, you, you pass it on. But the truth is, it will ring hollow unless you first have lived it and know the gloriousness of it. You can't declare something to be glorious that isn't first to you glorious. Paul could not pass on the joy of the faith if it were not first joyful to him. And so much of what he's saying here, I think, when he says, I have fought the fight of faith, is to live out this deposit in my own life. To, to really come to see it and experience it and live it. So really what he's telling us is, I have, I have lived out the faith. And, and what did he live out? What, what was it that was so glorious to Paul? What was it that was so precious to him that he wanted Timothy to make sure that he didn't lose it and that generations didn't lose it? 
Well, I think a hint of that, there's, there's lots of hints, but one hint in the text that we've been looking through is back in chapter 3. If you go back to chapter 3, a few weeks ago, we were in that particular part of 2 Timothy, particularly if you go to verse uh, 14. Here, Paul, again, coming to the end, some of his last words, but he says this to Timothy, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, from Paul. It wasn't just some rote kind of message he was passing on, but he learned it from Paul because he'd watched Paul live it, and he'd come to firmly believe it because of watching Paul, and also because how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise, the Old Testament scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This deposit is about that. This deposit is about a salvation from sin found in Jesus Christ. And that is what was glorious to Paul. That was the foundation of, of what he wanted to Trans, wanted to, to pass on to the generations, what he wanted Timothy to pass on to the generations, that he had found joy there. How does he describe it? What I want to do now this morning is, is just describe that. Maybe, maybe whet your appetite a bit, a bit for where we're going, the middle of September, because I begin with that going back to the book of Romans. You see, salvation, he had found a salvation, and there are times when we've been together, um, and, and you who are here often know me well enough to know that when I talk about salvation, I think the Bible talks about salvation in three different aspects. It talks about the idea of being justified before God, having our sins forgiven, and knowing that they're not going to be held against us, justification. But salvation is more than that as the scripture unfolds it. And so Paul saw glory and justification, that his sins were forgiven. He also found glory in the gospel that promised that God would begin to sanctify his life. In other words, begin to make his life different, begin to make him more and more like Christ. That's what sanctification is, that he would grow in godliness. And ultimately one day he would be glorified, which is the third aspect of what I think the Bible teaches when it talks about a salvation that Timothy had come to to see patterned in Paul and in the Old Testament scriptures as we just read. So all of that is what gave Paul an incredible joy, a joy in his heart that he wanted to see passed on to Timothy and on to the generations. But what I want to do this morning is look at how he described some of that. Look at how Paul described it in other places where he wrote in the New Testament. And I begin, I begin with that in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. You might want to turn there if you have your Bibles this morning. If not, listen intently to what he writes in Romans chapter 3 and, and verse 21. Listen to what the scripture says. This is Paul writing now about, about justification, about knowing that your sins are forgiven and how they can be forgiven. He said this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And other times we've talked about, and we'll talk about it again, former sins were, were the sins of people like Abraham and David, Old Testament figures that in one sense God had passed over their sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He, he didn't just sweep those sins under the carpet. He didn't pass over them forever. But the Bible talks about him passing over them for a time so that Christ could bear the penalty of that. And they, in fact, could be justified. Their sin would need not be held against them. Christ would become the propitiation for their sins. And Paul also knew for his sin. The one who had stood by the grave of the first martyr of the church, Stephen. In fact, not only had stood there, but given consent to it and held his clothes in his hands. This one who had done all that, God came to and showed how that sin could be forgiven, how it would not have to be held against him because of the work of Christ, because Christ became the propitiation because Christ took the punishment, took Paul's punishment as he took David's and Abraham's, those that he had passed over their sins, those Old Testament saints who look forward to a day when the Messiah would come. They didn't understand how that Messiah would save them fully. They didn't understand that Messiah would, would come fully as a man as well as fully God and that he would die as a man, and bear the penalty of their sin so that they might be justified. They didn't know all of that. But Paul did when he wrote this because Paul was looking back to the cross. And just as Timothy, as he admonished Timothy to to look at the Old Testament scriptures and see how they found their fulfillment in Christ, he had done the same. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul knew the Old Testament as well as any man who walked the face of the earth. And he knew that those scriptures pointed to Christ, the sin bearer, his sin bearer. And he was justified. He had come to experience the joy of seeing a righteousness from God being revealed, a righteousness that could be his by faith. And that's that's the thing that was the foundation of his joy, the foundation of why he could say to the Philippians, I, I'm going to remain here for your progress and joy in the faith. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Your joy in the faith. Christianity, first and foremost, if we really see what it is, should produce joy, not a flippant, trite joy dependent on circumstances around us, but a deep, deep joy of knowing that there is a righteousness that is available to me through the work of Christ 
by faith that allows me to be justified, allows me to not worry that my sin will ultimately be held against me. And that's the, that's the beginning of that work of salvation. That's got to be foundational to it. Don't, don't get the cart before the horse. Don't jump to sanctification before you fully understand justification. Because what you'll do if you do that is you'll begin to think your sanctification is the means of attaining a righteousness by which God can forgive your sin. You'll fall into a, a cycle of trying to merit your salvation, which is absolutely an antithesis to the gospel. You see, Paul had spent all of his life up until that Damascus Road experience believing that, believing that he could somehow merit the righteousness of God. And in that experience on the Damascus Road, he came to understand that that was not the way to go. That was not the way to be righteous before God that only by the righteousness of Christ could we be declared not guilty. Only by the work of Christ could we not have our sins held against us. But he goes on in other places then to talk about sanctification because he did it on that foundation. The other things that began to produce joy in his life is that not only was he knowing the freedom from the penalty of sin, that's what justification is, But Paul also knew that there was a freedom from the power of sin. That there was something available that God would provide and did provide in the death of Christ that would give us a newfound power to come against sin in our life, to not always have to say yes to it in our lives and give in to it. Listen to how he writes in other places again in Scripture. Philippians chapter 2, Paul wrote this, Beloved, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, now this is the same people that he said he was going to remain for the progress and their joy in the faith. He writes this, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, live out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. One of the glorious things of the gospel, one of the other things that produced great joy in Paul's life was the fact that when Jesus went away, he sent the Holy Spirit to come. And the Holy Spirit indwells those who put their faith in Christ. And he begins to work in them to will and to do according to his good pleasure. There's something within us, God within us, that begins to help us to come against the power of sin. Listen to how he wrote in Corinthians to the church there. And God is able, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that uh, in all suffering at all times you may abound in every good work. In every circumstance you may abound in every good work. Promise of the scripture. Paul knew there were two enemies, and there are two enemies. The two enemies that Paul knew was certainly Satan, the enemy of our souls. Um, Satan's primary ploy is to eat faith, to come and try to destroy faith because faith is the key, fighting the fight of faith. He knew Satan would come. He tried to discourage, but also our flesh, 
Also our old life, our old nature, the old indwelling sin, those are two enemies of our soul. But here in sanctification, God comes and wants to live in us, to will and to do according to his good pleasure, to come against those things and to help us not only be free from the penalty of sin, but also to begin to give us a newfound power to come against sin. That was the second thing that began to create joy in, in Paul's heart, that he no longer had to just give in, but God was helping him. And then finally, freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the power of sin, but ultimately now Paul finds himself at a place where in just a short time, he is going to be freed from the presence of sin. Ultimately, he will be freed from the very presence of sin in his life. He describes it in the text this morning by saying, the time of my departure has arrived. Time of my departure has come. What departure? I think the departure from this life certainly is the possibility of what he meant and may very well be what he meant. But I think it also has the connotation that the the text, the original text, has the connotation of departure in the sense of taking off on a journey. And so he could have meant there, certainly, my departure from this life, but he also could have meant my departure on a new journey. A new journey free from the very presence of sin. And that's what it is to be glorified. We are justified, which allows God to work in us, to sanctify us, and one day will glorify us. One day will free us from the very presence of sin. One day will free us from Satan trying to eat our faith. He will free us from our own, our own indwelling sin that continues to remain in us and wants to bite and nip at our heels. Um, He will free us from all of that. One day we will be glorified and we will live in his presence and, and be made perfect as he is made perfect and live in that domain. That's, that's all what God does when he saves a soul. He does all of that. Paul was confident of that. He had no doubt. Look at how he writes it in this particular text. I'm already, in verse 6, being poured out as a drink offering. Time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Hence there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. The crown of righteousness. What is it? Is it, is it a reward for the fact that somehow Paul had lived in a way that merited it, that he had done enough good things that somehow God would declare, say, you have arrived at a certain place that I will declare you righteous now. No, that was the old way Paul had lived. That was the old system under which he had been burdened down and weighed down and driven to do all kinds of havoc within the church because of it. But the crown of righteousness here, I think, is the crown of righteousness, which is the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness becomes ours. He is given the crown of Christ's righteousness. 
And that's the gospel. That's, that's why it is such a glorious gospel. It's what he accomplished. It's what he did outside of us. An alien righteousness that he accomplished in the cross. And the beauty of all of that is that not only is it available to Paul, but here it goes on to say, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, but not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Who's that? Who are those that have loved his appearing? Is it not those to whom have also had their eyes open to see the glory of that gospel? Those that Paul labored to continue to work among after his first imprisonment for their progress and joy in the faith? What, what is that joy? Is that that joy, a joy resting in God's forgiveness? Resting in God's power within them to come against sin and ultimately knowing that God's power will one day fully deliver them from sin. And therefore, they don't dread his appearing. They don't dread it thinking maybe, maybe I will fall short. Maybe I haven't done enough. Maybe I need to stay around a while to build up more merit. But they look forward to his appearing because the crown of righteousness is the righteousness of Christ that he accomplished by coming and dying. But before he died, he lived perfectly. And he accomplishes a righteousness that the scripture says he will give to us and does give to us. He who had no sin. Paul writes this. He who had no sin. It had to amaze Paul. God came who had no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. There's nothing when you come to see it that is more joyful than that. And there's nothing that will advance your progress in the gospel, in the faith, more than seeing that and that being the center. This morning I pray that's the case. I pray that you, along with Paul, come today because you look forward to his appearing. You look forward to the day when the crown of righteousness will be yours. We're going to sing together a song that uh, talks about that righteousness, actually. Talks about that righteousness of Christ. And I pray that our prayer is even what we sing, that, Lord, I need you. And I rest in that righteousness alone. Let's stand and sing together. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart, you're the one that guides my heart. 
Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Sin runs deep, your grace is more, where grace is found, is where you are, and where you are, Lord, I am free, holiness is Christ in me, where you As I see my need, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. And as I see my need, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Lord, I Father, we're grateful for people like Paul. Who fought the good fight of faith. To the end, he continued to believe your promises. Stake his life on them. Particularly your promise 
that in Christ there is a righteousness from God that is received by faith. Lord, I pray that's a living reality for those who are here today, that that they can declare my one defense, my righteousness, is Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go in God's peace.